Thanks for joining us on the DDS Faith Podcast. Our prayer is that as we discuss what God has to teach us through His Word, we can all learn how to deepen, defend, and share our faith in Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about Scripture. We want to cover the inerrancy of Scripture and how God actually preserves His Word and some of the proofs of that. Uh, Tonight's a little bit different. We don't have Jeremy with us. He's... um, He's actually at a funeral this week, uh, so y'all be praying for him and his family. And then, uh, uh, t- but this week we actually got something a little bit new that we're trying. This is new; it's all technology to us. So uh, we're praying that it works out. But uh, we've got Jed Miller in our top right corner over here. Um, Bottom left. Well, apparently top, top, top. he's been moved. He's down here. So now he's Can down here. Am I pointing now? to him now? Okay, so, like, he's right there. We're pointing to him now. <laughs> All right. How can I, can I like brush the top of him? That, that that's weird. Okay. Oh my weird. gosh. <laughs> weird. It's weird if you do that. This is Jed. Okay. Anyway, so um, Jed, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce who you are? Yeah. So uh, I'm Jed Miller. I am a pastor out here in Pensacola, Florida. A pastor of a small church in Beulah. Uh, which is about as close to Alabama you can get in the Panhandle without actually being in Alabama. Um, little small church, uh, great opportunity that God gave me a couple years back to serve there as the head pastor. Uh, before that, served as a youth pastor for 10 years, got to see all the joys and the sorrows that uh, come from being in a position like that. And I've been at great churches, been at churches that were a little bit more frustrating, but uh, <laughs> God's seen me through. And uh, now that I'm where I'm at, uh, man, God's just blessing all over. The church started at uh, 20 members, and now we're running about 70 on a regular Sunday. Uh, the Beulah area is exploding and growing all around us. Uh, so it's mostly uh, just if you're not doing what's right, you're not going to grow. And if you're doing what's right, then you'll be growing out the wazoo. And God, through that, has allowed a church that in the last five or six years hasn't had zero salvations or zero baptisms to really ramp it up. And so last year, I think we did 12 salvations and 12 baptisms. And the year after that, we did six salvations and four baptisms i believe because two of them were at a uh, event that we were doing so god's just been allowing us to bless and to see him move and we're excited to see where he goes next yeah now jed um that's that's really awesome uh now you and i were talking about we, we we've talked privately uh several times about this kind of stuff now you're not just going out and getting them saved right you've actually got discipleship uh that you guys are working on through aren't you yeah, so we've got a, a small church uh, sort of budget and timeline uh, and a church that we're working towards growing towards health. Uh, and so we're implementing those sort of as we go with the opportunities we get. So we've got uh, Sunday school classes that go normally, which is not great discipleship, but it's at least a starting point for a lot of yeah. our people that have never had that. Uh, and then we've got men's Bible studies and ladies Bible studies at other times of the week that cause people to be able to bring people in to be able to join with us. And then, of course, I and some of our men do uh, individual one on one Bible studies, especially uh, we're ramping up, allowing our deacons to do some of that as well. And so uh, I would say we're, we're beginning the process to get where we need to be uh, to have uh, true discipleship in the one on one living life together and growing as Christians sort of sense. Yeah, that's awesome. So like. I know that it could be frustrating. You know, some churches, all, all they care about is numbers. And, you know, you mentioned some numbers earlier, but, you know, you actually have discipleship. It's not just, all right, let's get them saved and uh, see you later. Have a good day. You know, 
Um, sure. Yeah. Numbers numbers are important, right? Uh, yeah. They're, they're a they're a metric by which we track uh, the health of a church, but they're not the most important metric that we help track the health of a church. Right. I was reading a book years ago called uh, "The Measure of Our Success" by a guy named Sean Lovejoy. Yeah. Uh, and then he made the argument, basically, what you're making with discipleship, which is uh, a better number. If you wanted to track a number, would be not just how many people are attending my church on Sunday morning or how many people. Uh, sort of have been attending my church, but how many of the people attending my church regularly have moved into some form of deeper Bible study in the last month, two months? That's awesome. And that number is a much more important number than just how many have started coming. Exactly. When it's important not to get discouraged by low numbers. Um, yeah. When sometimes it's slow, mm-hmm. and that's okay. And actually, a lot of times it's slow. It doesn't mm-hmm. always just explode like it did at the day of Pentecost you know, from Acts 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, most of the time, especially in this day and age, it's very, very slow, especially because a lot of people aren't actually being discipled. They're just getting them saved, and that's it. And it's like, oh, show up to church, you know, read your Bibles. You know, we're not going to tell you how or sure. how to study, but, uh, you know, be there. <laughs> and even, even the argument that uh, that growth is, is what our goal should be, or even that it's a measure of success, you know, plenty of churches are going to be there are 100 members now, and there'll be 100 members 10 years from now. That is not necessarily a bad thing. It's right. The question is, how, what are you doing with the people you have for the time you have? Them? And exactly. so, uh, you know, some churches are out of the way. Some churches are small. I kid people all the time who came from Pensacola, like you did, Wes, that we've sort of been spoiled in that way. Yeah. Uh, because in our area, like in within about 10 miles of everybody else or 10 square miles, maybe, we have like six mega churches, oh, yeah. and so everybody from here thinks that's what a normal church looks like. But the that's actual not. average <laughs> around the world, but even in our country, is like a hundred or less in your church. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and so that's you know we've we've just got a skewed mindset, and we have to keep ourselves right with whatever God gives me. I'm gonna use well, and if God sees fit to give me more, I'll do that well as well. Yeah. When I'm I'm sure you're in a very humbling position because like the way God can use you to um, help people grow into a little bit of a deeper faith. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of humility with that just because um, there's a lot of blessings that you can see out of that, but it's also easy to get discouraged. Um, so like, like I said, I'm sure that's very humbling. Yeah, I think it's, it's easy to get discouraged, but it's also, I think, easier to get too puffed up than it is actually to get mm-hmm. discouraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to get yourself in a position where, okay, I've seen all these people grow and then to begin to think, well, I've got it down now. I don't really need the, the constant prayer, or constant study myself of God mm-hmm. because I can, I've got the system down now. I can do it this way every time. Uh, and that leads to more problems, I think, than anything else in our world. I'd rather be discouraged uh, and allow God to encourage me uh, than I would be so full of myself that I'm, I'm not even asking God for help anymore. Definitely. Uh, and and so, on top of that, strategies have to change. Uh, oh yeah you know a lot of people are like well we've been doing it this way for 20 years and it's like well great it worked 20 years ago okay it's time to move on like mm-hmm. we it's clearly not working now it's let's to adapt. Let, let's let's mm-hmm. step something up you know when i think that like the, the whole podcast movement is like a, a, a good example of how um we've adapted a little bit because like 10 years ago hardly anybody listened to pod like we're podcasts even here 10 years ago yes and now like <laughs> I, okay well i was too young to, to i know, know you were podcast. like five yeah no i was eight eight yeah <laughs> but um he got his first cell phone and I'm like, okay whatever <laughs> but like 
and now and now I know of so many Christian podcasts that have only been a thing for a couple years, and it's just like the way, um, like social media can be a great advantage to a Christian, but it can also be a horrible weapon for the enemy. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with podcasts, and there's good ones and bad ones, obviously. Um, something I kind of wanted to ask you though, and like, um, if you're comfortable sharing, is like, what what does your your preaching look like? Like, I assume you're the one that um, preaches quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I, my youth pastor preaches about once a quarter because I want to make sure that our church sees and knows him both as a uh, leader in our church, but also as a pastor in his own right. Um, that was one of my biggest frustrations as a youth pastor was when people kept asking me, when are you going to grow up and be a real pastor? Right. You know, if, if that's where God's called him, that's where God's called him. And I want the church to see him that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he gets that opportunity. I try to make sure that he gets an opportunity in every series that we go through. Um, but uh, I vary, honestly, it sort of depends on what the church needs. I certainly preach uh, what you call exegetically, uh, which means I preach verse by verse in whatever context I'm preaching. Um, but I do jump back and forth sometimes between topical and straight book by book. Uh, so my first year there, we did uh, Fruits of the Spirit, and then we did an entire year through Acts. Uh, and we took it verse by verse. Uh, sometimes it was six verses, sometimes it was 20. It sort of depended on what God was leading forward and what message there was in those scriptures to, to pull out. Uh, and then this year we've done a little bit more topical, but again, staying true to reading uh, the verses in the context that they're meant to be read in. So we did uh, combating like church grief and church uh, hurt uh, and took that out of uh, the book of First Kings where you see Elijah uh, go through uh, his trials after Mount Sinai. Uh, and walked through that verse by verse and pulled out each sort of aspect of what he was going through and talked to our church, how you then overcome the same way that he overcomes by Christ reaching out to you and you allowing God to sort of uh, comfort you through that struggle. So uh, exegetical, but uh, occasionally topical or back and forth. I think I told Wes the other day, uh, this next year we're doing uh, all doctrine. Uh, so we're doing the 10 major Christian doctrines throughout the entire year. So the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of Jesus. Uh, doctrine of the church, doctrine of man, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of angels, the doctrine of Satan, the doctrine of uh, end times, and there's one I'm missing. I don't remember which one it was, but that whole series of stuff. So we'll be going through that yeah, that's uh, very a ton. slowly and plodding <laughs> through it. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's, it's cool because it's, well, it's kind of funny, not necessarily cool, but like, you know, when people think about verse-by-verse -verse preaching versus topical, um, you know, I, I would say probably most preachers do topical, but many mm -hmm. of them aren't doing a good exegesis like you're talking about. Um, you know, and a lot of people like to be very dogmatic. It's either it's all topical or it's all exegetical. If you do one topical thing, it's wrong. And it's like, well, hang on now. Um, you can have good exegesis and do topical. Um, it's mm -hmm. not... Uh, it, now it's it's a whole lot easier to mess that up when you're doing it topically. It's a whole lot easier to have uh, expository and exegetical preaching uh, whenever you're. Where was I going with that? <laughs> you know, I, I think you're. I think you're right, though. It's it's easier to mess that up. There is uh, just to play the devil's advocate on that. It's also sometimes easier, I think, uh, preaching exegetically because you always know what your next sermon is going to be about. Yep. Uh, and you can kind of get yeah. ahead of yourself more. Yeah. Uh, whereas topically, you sort of have to be a little bit more dynamic about what it is you're doing. Um, so they both have pitfalls. Uh, yeah. But the key is 
that no matter how you're preaching, that you're preaching every verse you're saying in context uh, and meaning exactly what those verses have to say, not adding your own. I always love to, to explain that, the Sherlock Holmes yeah. uh, quote that I've always loved, which is uh, he's arguing with Watson at one point, and he says, if you're not careful, you'll begin to twist your facts to fit your theories mm -hmm. instead of your theories to fit your facts. And we do that uh, sometimes when we get in danger as pastors, we begin to twist scripture to fit our topic rather yeah. than to you let our topic fit our facts or our verses. And that's where you're cherry picking scriptures. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 you know. Uh, there's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with topical as long as you're doing it right. Like, um, like I, I've preached like two or three topical sermons, and then I remember the first one I ever did was when Wes was still my youth pastor, and I exposited um, John 14, 1 through 6. Um, and so I did that and I went through that process and learned how to exposit and let it mean what it's supposed to mean. And then like just a couple of weeks ago, I did a topical on being bold, but I also exposited Philippians one, um, specifically verse yeah. 21, like to live as Christ to die as gain. Well, I remember and, when I gave you that, that scripture and I said, okay, I want you guys to do, uh, John 14, one through six. You're like, what? Six verses? <laughs> yeah. How am I supposed to get anything and, out of this? Those are like the six verses in the Bible that you could, I mean, it's easy. you could go so <laughs> long on. Yeah, I mean, you could go so far on that. And I, I remember having a really hard time with that originally. And after, I mean, I guess it was probably a month of planning. I had like five or six pages of just crazy notes. And it was just, <laughs> I would have one verse and I would have a page of notes and another verse and a page of notes and another verse and a page of notes. Yeah. And then, like I said, I did the, the topic mm -hmm. one a couple of weeks ago on being bold and just exposited Philippians 1. Yeah. And not all Philippians 1, but like a couple, like a section of it. And I think both sides are really good to do as long as, like, like you said, the topical, you can't try and find something that's going to fit what you think it should be. You know, you don't want to sacrifice right. what the Bible actually means. Yeah. Let's read the context so, around it. <laughs> yeah, sort of the other danger uh, when you go to topical really is that uh, – it's easier when you're doing topical to justify why you're skipping certain topics. So it's easy to say, okay, we're going to do six weeks on thankfulness and we're going to do 10 weeks on uh, salvation or whatever it is. And then to never do a week on sin or to never do a week on, right. uh, you know, whatever it is, because, well, we're just going to avoid that. It doesn't really fit within the topic we're doing. Whereas if you're doing straight exegetical, right, if you're preaching through the book of Acts or you're preaching through the book of Hebrews well, then if you're honest with yourself and with your preaching, it's always eventually going to come up. You're going to have to teach every topic because every topic eventually ranges itself around what you're teaching in Scripture. And so uh, to skip it would mean that you either are intentionally being cowardly or you have something you don't want God talking to you about, yeah. uh, which is which is a danger. I mean, I had a pastor do that uh, in one of the churches I was in where uh, he— he had to leave the church because of an adulterous affair. And when we looked back at the sermon series, he was preaching through Hebrews uh, and I had to finish it off for him. Once he was gone, he had skipped over uh, oh, some very key verses in like the later part of Hebrews about adultery. And we were all like, he kept saying, and remember we're asking him about it at the time and saying, Hey, where are you going to preach these? Uh, and he, Oh, well, that's what it was. He had me skip over when I was going to preach while he was out of town. Oh. It would have been those verses. And so he said, no, you go ahead and preach Hebrews chapter 11, and then I'll come back and hit those. And he just never came back and hit them. And then we found all this out, and then I had to go back and hit them like the week or two after he left and then <laughs> preach the rest of Hebrews. And then you so had an example. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, then I had a great, yeah, no, no, we stay away from that example. <laughs> but we, we very Speaking kindly of adultery. walked through. <laughs> well, hey, yeah, let's, that's, let's, 
let's jump into this uh, some of these questions that we had. Um, so tonight we're going to discuss inerrancy of Scripture. And, you know, there's some questions on, you know, what, what does this mean? You know, can there be grammatical errors uh, or scribal errors versus content errors? And just kind of what are some of the differences of those versus, you know, what is a, what is a scribal error versus a grammatical error and then a content error? And what do we actually have in the Bible? What do we actually see? There's a there's a sermon that Greg Pigner did years ago that I always loved where he was talking about the different errors that come up and just describing through this topic. And he just said, obviously, you have to make sure that you that you separate out these kinds of errors, right? Yes. Nobody is talking about uh, like slight discrepancies and like, oops, this was spelled wrong or oops, exactly. that's not really that's a anybody talking error. about. Right. And I can tell you from personal experience, right? So we're um, as part of my Bible study, I actually write out the scripture. Yeah. Uh, and I've been doing that for a while now. So I'm, I'm back in Genesis chapter five, writing through uh, the scriptures. And it's always very easy, even as you're looking at it directly, to miss a word or to have to scribble one out or to misspell something and to try and fix that into what you're doing. And you're almost always going to miss one, um, yep. no matter how mm-hmm. uh, fastidious is a word I'm going to use here, because I can't <laughs> think of a better one. Uh, no matter how careful you are. Uh, you're always going to make mistakes somewhere. That's why the scribes, when they were doing this, were really, really, really careful. Uh, and it took them ages and ages to write through Scripture because yeah. they wanted to absolutely make sure that they were doing it right. Uh, but no matter how good you're doing it, there's always going to be an error somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and those those have to be almost discounted in their entirety because it's going to happen. We're human. We're fallible. Exactly. Uh, even in the best of the worlds, we're not going to do it perfect. And, and that's just a scribal error. That's just like, oh, man, I— I totally messed that up. You know, I put an I when I should have put a T or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, you know, in the grammatical errors that you may see. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. For a fantastic example, if you go look in Ephesians 1, uh, you find one of the longest run-on sentences in all of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you look at it and you're just like English, like, oh, that's just bad grammar. And it's like, okay, hold on. Two things. One, that's how Greek was written. Like they yeah. had a bunch of run on sentences. If you can read Greek, they have tons of run on sentences. Um, so actually it's just more true to the original text, which is awesome. Uh, but two, when you're translating something from a different language, uh, you're going to have grammatical differences just to try to get the point of what was trying to be said. Um, I mean that's just that's just normal translating translating issues. Sure, and that's not even counting right the uh, the distinction. This is I think an important in this discussion to talk then about uh, what what we talk about when we talk about even just translating the word of God, yeah. because in all the translations we have, let's just say forty, but I'm sure there are more. Uh, they all use one of basically three types of translations. And they each have their own very unique uh, pros and cons, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, all the way from what I use, and I think what you still use, which is the ESV and NASB, sort of that side of translation, which were done through word for word, which means yeah. they took Greek, they took Hebrew, and they, as best they could, did every word for word thing, uh, accounting for the fact that occasionally you have to add articles or things like that yeah. because the languages are different. Exactly. And then the... The other side is sort of the, the, the less exacting, but more possibly uh, readable side, which is thought for thought, 
where they took the idea of what's being said and we wrote that down in how we would say it in English. Right, but there's more uh, opinion and, in that, which makes it an issue. As you get to the very end of it, there's more opinion, but in, right. the, in the most true to the sense of what they're trying to do, if they're trying to translate, it's yeah. really about, let me take a phrase that would be choppy in English if you wrote it word yeah. for word and make it uh, as, as clear as I can possibly make it in this. There is some opinion in it. Uh, yeah. The paraphrasing is really where you got to get careful with the, the, the opinionized side where right. then you got like things like the message or the living Bible or things like that where uh, well, they're, they're great. They're great for helpful study, but they're not good for deep study. Yeah. Well, what's cool about uh, the word for word translations. And again, uh, this was a couple episodes ago when we were talking about this. Uh, look in the front of your Bibles and, and look at the, the legend and it tells you like, hey, these words are in a different font for a different reason. Well, I know that in my Bible, I use an NASB. And what they do is every once in a while, you'll see a word in italics. And, yeah. you know, you may read that like, well, what's that for? Well, what they did was, uh, and a lot of times it'll be a noun. Um, uh, and it's because, like, they repeat the subject. Because in Greek, uh, they often don't. Like, they'll talk about the same thing. Yeah. And, and what they're talking about in sentence, uh, in chapter, in uh, verse 1, and they're still talking about it in verse 30, but they haven't repeated what they were talking about, like in English does. So they add that um, into there, and that's why you'll see those particular um those particular words in italics. Um, yeah, I will say that things that also make that hard is we were talking with our church about this this Sunday, actually, is the fact that we've added chapter and verse to it because those weren't originally in it. Oh, I know. Uh, and when you, when you add chapter and verse, it makes us in a natural sense think, okay, at the end of this chapter is the end of that thought. And it's really not. And it's really not. Well, it's occasionally it is, but not really. And Mostly so, it's not. It's, you know, like, like, <laughs> well, like, oh, but uh, she's, a good one is we, we brought it up a minute ago, you know, John 14, you know, and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Well, why? Well, if you go read, Jesus has told him, hey, tonight you're all going to fall away. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Don't let your heart be troubled. But nobody yeah. ever talks about that. Well, that's, a good, that's a good example of going back to the context because not, not, you you're not just backing up a little bit. Like you have to go back to the previous chapter yeah. to see the scene in the upper room to understand what John chapter 14 is talking about. Exactly. Um, yeah, we were we were preaching on uh, Hebrews chapter twelve, which starts out therefore, which as I was kidding you the other day, Wes, <laughs> therefore inherently means everything that came before this. Like, exactly. So if you you're if your chapter starting with you therefore, it means <laughs> you got to go backwards and read a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and reading like especially me reading a lot of the New Testament, you're gonna feel like you're finding a lot of continuity errors. Um, so like a good example would be in James, it says. Um, faith without faith without works is dead, but Ephesians uh, is it Ephesians one talks about how we are or Ephesians two. Well, Paul pretty much in every one well, of yeah, his letters true, he says it. In Ephesians two, um, Paul says that um, you are saved by grace alone, um, and that's very paraphrased. But and you're gonna think well those two sure. contradict each other, um, but really you can put those two together and know what each one of them is talking about and what each one of them are addressing right. to put them together and have one idea. Well, what um, I love about James specifically is if you really read that, um, and uh, he, he says, um, you know, faith without works is dead. You know, can you, um, can you show me a faith that does not have works? Can that faith save him? Hmm. And I like how he puts that faith because essentially what you're saying is it's like you're doing the faith, 
that has nothing to back it up. There's mm. no foundation. There's nothing to support it. You know, it's not that my works give me faith. It's that I have faith. Therefore, uh, I will have works. It's mm. a, uh, it's a. One in the I following. Can't think of the, I can't think of the word. The following no, verse so, he said. Um, go ahead. <laughs> I knew this was gonna happen. No, like, no, you're good. <laughs> the uh, the uh, so the faith without works argument is to me always the, like the semantical argument is what James is making. Really, uh, he's not arguing. Is this faith the thing that's saving you, or is the works the thing that's saving you? He's making an argument that I make all the time when I try to teach the distinction between belief and faith. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Bible makes clear, like even Satan and his minions believe in God. Like they right. know who Jesus is. They know that he came and died. They know that he uh, went on the cross. They know that he was sinless. But why aren't they then saved by that? Well, because it's not actually faith. Faith is the idea of putting action to a belief. It is putting your money where your mouth is. And so James is making that argument. He's saying, look, if you've got faith that doesn't then somehow supply works into your life, then you don't actually have faith. You have belief in something, but you don't have faith that that thing will carry you through. Exactly. Well, in the verse that Wes was just talking about in James 2, the following verse, or the following, the next part of that says that um, I will show you my faith by my works. Right. And That's so right. you yeah. read that, and then you also read everything Paul wrote, especially in Ephesians 2, and it says that you're saved by grace alone, and you think that those two contradict each other. But really, they help you understand, I guess, two sides of the same idea. And I heard an analogy from Frank Turek. Somebody was asking him how we know that all four of the Gospels um, are correct because one might say this and the other one might not. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, John mentions that whenever Jesus was crucified, everybody fell down to their knees. Um, there at the, what is it called? Where, he, where did he die? Garden of Gethsemane. No. Uh, well, that's when they fell. Okay. So John mentions that, but the other Gospels don't. Um, so I heard like the analogy from Frank Turek, he was saying like, let's, and Wes has heard this. I'm not sure if I've said this on here or not, but like if you are at an event and somebody says, Hey, this person spoke and the other person says, well, this person sang. Well, just because those two people said different things doesn't mean that those two things didn't happen. Maybe right. this person sang and this person <laughs> spoke. You can put those two things together to see the, what, the whole right. picture. Well, and then you have different perceptions of the way people are looking like, okay, this cup right here. Um, it's on my left. What side is this on? My right. No, it's on it's on <laughs> the right, but it's on the left from the way I'm staring at it. You, know? <laughs> you just made me sound so like an just... idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't make you sound anyway. You do it all on your own. I know. Yeah. I, I was thinking that right. Uh, no, I was thinking that in the in the ratio of like uh, really what you're arguing is the 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 way all of us differently view things, and we see that right. all the time in the Synoptic Gospels, right? So. Luke is writing the same story, but he is much more focused on eyewitness accounts. Exactly. Right? Uh, Mark and Peter are writing the book of Mark, but they are much more focused on the Israelite and Jewish believers. Uh, Matthew is focusing on something specific and different. Like they're all coming at it from their own unique perspectives, which is great because that's how we know the entirety of Scripture, that it is God-breathed but written by man in their own sort of voice and vernacular yeah. so that we know that different people are using or seeing God from different locations. And it's great about that. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so on this, I just want to be really clear, really quick. So we've talked about grammatical errors, scribal errors, and now we're talking about continuity errors. There are grammatical errors in the Bible. That's just a translational mishap. It's going to happen, period. 
There are going to be scribal errors. There are going to be human mistakes. But I will tell you that for a fact, there are no content errors. And that's what we're talking about right now whenever um, uh, whenever Eli talked about James and he was talking about, you know, faith without works. You know, another continuity error that some people think is, um, you know, oh, the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. You know, and, um, oh, man, I've, I've seen, um, what was it? I can't remember what I was watching. But, um, no, you know what? I think it was Big Bang Theory. And, uh, and uh, the um, Sheldon's mom, super conservative, very so-called Christian lady. Well, anyway, she's like, well, Old Testament, God would have smit him. But the New Testament, God would forgive him. You know? <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's really funny. But unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people see this. They see an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, and they're not necessarily the same the, the same God. They see the Old Testament God turn somebody into a pillar of salt or strike people down with lightning. Yeah. And, they, and that's not really in the New Testament. But it really, but see, what's so funny is everybody I mean, forgets about Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, New, Te- New Testament God did drive a whole bunch of people out of a temple with a bullwhip. So, let's <laughs> yeah. say. That's right. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is no difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament. And I think, you know, one of the one of the worst things we did was probably label Old Testament and New Testament. Or even worse, Old Covenant and New Covenant. There's only one covenant, and it's the covenant that God made to Abraham. Um, and that, and you can even trace that back um, even before whenever in uh, Genesis 3 where God tells, uh, tells the serpent, he says, you know, um, I will put enmity between you and her, y- your seed and her seed. Uh, you will bruise him on the heel, but he will bruise you on the head. Uh, and, you know, that was the that's what we see with Jesus dying on the cross mm. and then rising again from the dead. You know, you don't see that up front, but you do see it in hindsight. And then eventually mm. Abraham comes and it's not, you know, I'll give you a whole bunch of kids. That's not necessarily God's promise. It's through your seed. I will bless all nations through your seed. You will find that salvation. And I think it's chapter four of Romans. And Paul actually clarifies. And he says, notice, he says, God didn't say seeds. He said seed. And he essentially he equates that to Christ. Hmm. Yeah, it's all about Christ. It's not about any in particular nation or tongue or people, although there are very dedicated uh followers there are very dedicated yeah. promises that were specific to israel that in particular was not one of them that was particularly to all of mankind through the right. seed which is jesus uh, i think about the the distinction for continuity between old testament god and new testament god really relies on our inability as people to genuinely see people or even god as fully everything at once rather than individualized right so we tend to see god in only one capacity at one time which is why uh there's the old testament uh moratorium on even creating an image of god in any sort of way yeah because inherently to create an image of god you have to pick out or the artist picks out what image they want that to depict so it's going to be an angry god or it's going to be a loving god or it's going to mm-hmm. be a this god you'll never convey god in his entirety and the same is true of us now. We see the Old Testament we go, oh, there he was angry and he smote someone. That means he's wrathful. Right. And then over here, oh, Jesus forgave somebody. So that means he's forgiving. But we forget that in the Old Testament, uh, you know, people were dying because of the poison of snakes and God created a pillar that they could look up to and instantly be healed. 
we forget that there was a God who gave manna and meat and all this sustenance to people who are wandering around in the desert for 40 years. We forget that there's all of these moments of blessing and of mercy and of love in the Old Testament as well. Yep. Uh, we just like to pick out one thing because our brain finds it easier to hold on to a single idea. Exactly. And, you know, when we see what's so important about what you see of the Old Testament God um, is you see the severity of our sin. And a lot of people, um, especially, um, especially, uh, I don't know, I, I, Messi, I was kind of thinking Messianic Jews. So Messianic Jews are really good about seeing the Old Testament, and that's awesome. But then Christians are like, mm-hmm. no, it's all grace. You know, we're not. It's it's not about the law. We don't have to worry about that. And it's like, hold on now, your sin is just as severe as it was in the Old Testament, and you need to take this seriously. You know, you can't just. Unfortunately, right now, a lot of us sin, and we're just like. Ah, it's okay. God forgives me. It's all it's all good. You know, it's not as bad in oh, the yeah. Testament when he smote somebody for this. You know, it's like, oh, hold on. It's still just as severe. You know, when, when God made the promise to Noah, it, it wasn't that, you know, oh, well, the only one ever going to be this bad again. You know, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> look at several other times in the Bible where you could sure. see uh, where they were just awful. And then God didn't smite them, or he did. You know, and we need to remember that mm. our sin has a severe consequence and God not only hates it, but just can't be around it because it's the opposite of him. Well, Romans three, yeah, was... the law exposes your sin. Um, there, I mean, there's no such thing as mm-hmm. black and white without the law. Yeah. Um, and that's like our, our basis of what sin is, our sense of morality or our moral compass. Yeah. I think it's uh, Romans five. He says, um, you know, or, or six, I'm not sure which, um, but he says like, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. We have the law so that we can know that we are sinful. Like that's exactly, we were always going to be bad. The question was, would we ever know it if there wasn't a rule? Right. My right. child who's three uh, is rebellious in spirit, but she would <laughs> never know she's rebellious. If I didn't give her rules for her to rebel against, Exactly. Right? she would still be rebellious. She would just not know it. That's I, I hate to ever try and anthropomorphize God because Truthfully, from what Scripture tells us, his ways are so much higher than our ways. His uh, knowledge is so much higher than our knowledge. We'll never be able to know him fully. We can know him in part, but we can't know God fully. Absolutely. Um, But to use that analogy, if you wanted to take Old Testament versus New Testament God, you could also look at it as a God who's dealing with different societies at different stages of growth, Uh, the same way I deal with my child, right? While she's two and three, every single time she— does something wrong every t- single time that she commits an offense, every single time that she backtalks or mouths off, I'm going to make sure that she understands how wrong that is. Sometimes exactly. it's just a talking to, sometimes it's a, uh, a sit down timeout, sometimes it's a spanking, but I'm going to do it every time. And the reason is I'm going to do that while she's young. And then when she's older, she'll already know what the boundaries are. And they'll be more clear when she gets there. So I don't have to do it when she's older because she's already understood where it is when she's younger. Uh, The the good animal analogy in that that people often forget because we don't really have circuses anymore. Uh, (laughs) If you ever wondered why elephants don't run away from circuses because they're giant and they could knock down everything in their path. Yeah. uh, It's because when elephants are babies, they stake them into the ground and tie a rope to them before they're old enough to pull out the stake. 
and they try and they try and they try. And then eventually they just, they realize they can't pull the stake out. And so even when they get older, they never try again because wow, I've already tried to pull it out. I can't get it out. No, that's a real thing. That's why they don't get, that's why they don't get free. Uh, it's the same thing, by the way, with greyhounds. I don't know if you know this. Great greyhounds, when they're running around the track and they're chasing after the rabbit, uh, if they ever catch it, they're useless because once they catch it, they realize it's not an actual rabbit and they won't chase it anymore. <laughs> wow. So it's, you have to always have that rabbit ahead of them. And if they catch it, the whole game's over. They won't do it anymore because, no, that's a fake rabbit. I'm not going after that crap. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we, we get those things in our brains. And God did that, I think, throughout history. Yeah. We're going to be maybe, I say harsher. It's not clear that God was harsher then than he is now. But let's right. just say he was harsher then so that now he can have the grace post Jesus' death to allow us the freedom to understand what's going on because we've grown and now we have to look and see the error there. And, you know, like I said, always careful not to anthropomorphize God because he's got bigger plans than I could ever imagine. And that may not even be close, but that's always the way I, I, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more thing I wanted to hit on this. Um, you know, they'll say stuff like, uh, a lot of atheists and non-believers will say things like, well, the Bible says incest is wrong, but then there's incest in the Bible. Or the Bible says adultery is wrong, but David committed adultery. You know, or polygamy is wrong, but all these people were polygamists. And it's like, yeah, and they were punished for those things, either by natural consequences. Um, or the one I like to joke about is Jacob, you know, because he ended up having, he had two wives, and then he had um, he had their wives' servants. And, uh, you know, like, well, God never punished him. And it's like, oh, God punished him. Uh, he just had the natural consequence of having four wives. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the, Eli doesn't get that yet. Right, <laughs> that's the fallacy, though, right, of, of just the fact that uh, the Bible is a complex book that's made up of different types of stories. And types of literature. And so you've got – that's right, types of literature is what I meant. But story is the word I'm going to use for lay yeah. people out there. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah, it's made up of all different types of books, and so you've got some books that are just historical record, right? It's not God did or didn't approve of these things. It's this is what happened, and sometimes we see God's disapproval, right? Uh, David's a good example of that. David commits adultery and then commits murder and then commits adultery some more, and then God comes to him and says, I am not okay with this through the story of Nathan and the story yeah. of this little sheep. And David repents, and he's sorrowful over it, and punishment comes because of that. He doesn't get away with it. Exactly. Um, so we see a God who, who cared in that moment about it, but you don't see every sin or every punishment result of every sin we see in the Bible. But that doesn't mean God approved of it. It just means that we didn't have all this history. It's one of the reasons I love uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is often wrongly called uh, the Hall of Faith, and people seem to attribute to it the idea that uh, the people who are mentioned in there were somehow more faithful than others. Uh, but if you get to about halfway through, I think it's about verse 23, uh, there is a passage in it that says, and time eludes me to tell you more about Barak and about David and about, and he lists off a whole bunch of names, which essentially caps off his discussion of it by saying, I don't have time to tell you about every single person who was faithful yeah. Go back and read all of your history. You'll see the people who are faithful <laughs> in that. Instead, let me finish this here, and then he goes on to talk a little bit more about those who died for the faith. 
uh, you know, we do that a lot with our history. We say, well, since God didn't say it, then yeah. that means it's not true. And yeah. there's no, because we, we do that. That's the biggest argument, right, for uh, homosexuality being right. okay in the New Testament is that, well, Jesus didn't mention it. Yeah. So <laughs> then we don't say, oh, so if in the 30 days or so we have of Jesus's life recorded, he didn't mention that thing. That he must also mean he's okay with it. He also didn't mention bestiality, but, you know. Mm. <laughs> it didn't mention a lot of things, but we still right. assume they're probably bad, right? Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of that that we, we as we as humans, we as people tend to uh, wrongly attribute historical record to God approval, which is not the case. Right. Definitely. So to kind of wrap this up, because we're getting close on time. Um, so all these questions we've, we've talked about, um, continuity errors and uh, scribal errors and grammar errors and all this stuff. Um, but the biggest question I have is how does God preserve his word? Um, like Psalm, I'm not sure where, but Psalm says like God will preserve His word through right. the generations. Yeah. Um, so how does He do that? Like, how do we know that this is what, say, Paul wrote? Yeah, and that that's an excellent question. I know I've heard some people try to argue um, against the Bible by saying, "Oh, we don't have any original copies of um, of the Bible." Like. Uh, or, or any of the texts. Like, as far as we know, we don't have any original copies. And, and a lot of people think, oh, no, that's, it, it destroys the Bible. And actually, if anything, it proofs it even more. And, and the reason is because, think about it. If you've got one original, you've got just one, then somebody could go in and change that, right? It would be very easy to change that. But if you had ten... You know, and we have way more than ten. But if you had ten, how would you how would you change it? You couldn't just change one copy. You'd have to change ten of them. So the fact that we don't have any originals is actually a really really good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know the, the more the more copies you have of something like that, the better. Now a lot of people are thinking copies. You know, like um, oh, it's on a copy machine. Like no, these are handwritten copies. This is a huge huge deal. Which um, you know, which is why. It, survives textual textual criticism um you know you look at a lot of the other ancient texts you don't have near the data near what they have in the bible like it's it's absolutely ridiculous Mm -hmm. what we have for the bible and people just try to say this thing is just you know it's just an old ancient text and you know whatever and it's like we except plenty of other ancient texts that have a whole lot less scrutiny than the well, Bible does. And that, that's a weird comparison here, but I've been to the museum where they have the Declaration of Independence, yeah. which is kind of cool. Like, I mean, the original one that, you know, John Hancock signed. Yeah, that's cool. Whoever, something, whoever wrote it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, Thomas Jefferson, I was blanking. I know who wrote it. I went to elementary school. <laughs> um, and that's cool because think about if somebody got a hold of this original copy and they changed something. We're all going to look at that and be like, okay, this is wrong because we have thousands of other copies of it that people have copied since then that say what it originally said. Right. So just because this original one has been changed, we know that that's not – we know that it's yeah. accurate because of all the other copies that we have, all the the PDFs. and every, I mean, how far we've come where there's just probably millions of copies out there of it. Yeah, it would be, it would well, be hard to yeah, change there's it. There's no way yeah. you could change that at this point. Well, and that's why the uh, I think the one of the best discoveries we've seen in the last uh, hundred years or so was the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? For Christianity yeah. was because 
we hear we had people making this argument that, well, we don't know if you're close to the original or not. We don't know how oh, yeah. tightly that it would be to the original thing. scripture. And so then we found these, I mean, randomly, which is great. I mean, God's providence. But randomly, I think if I remember the story correctly, like a shepherd or something was like throwing rocks into a into a quarry, hit a pot, heard it break, and was like, yeah. that's a weird sound. I'm going to go in there and look. <laughs> and he found all these scrolls. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out the biggest one was the entirety of the book of Isaiah. And yeah. when you line it up with what we have today in scripture, with the exception of a few typos or things here and there, it's exactly the same. Yep. It, it reads uncanny. exactly the same. It's it's absolutely so awesome. It, it's the fact that thousands of years in between that there's, there's just minor, minor sort of typo or scribe or sort of grammatical differences then it's exactly the same. I mean, it's this beautiful idea that even if you went back far enough, uh, that you would have this uh, attached, that it would be the same, that it would be uh, the real sort of word of God that we've always had. Yep, that's uh, exactly be- right. I mean, beyond that, just the fact that we still have them. I mean, you, again, you kind yeah. of briefly mentioned it. We don't have time to go into it in entirety, but just the fact of just manuscripts in general that we don't have the the backing of so many other things that we consider to be true. Yep. Right, books that we consider historically accurate, things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, yep. we consider vast portions of it to be historically accurate, even if we don't consider the magical portions of it to be historically accurate. Yeah, uh, and yet, yeah, we consider there was a city of Troy, we consider that there was a city, all that kind of stuff, right? And we have just way fewer copies of that than we have of the Bible. And yet, with the Bible, people are going, like, I don't know, <laughs> I don't think we can trust this. Yeah. Uh, Be- Beowulf and Grindel, I think, is another one. Great story. Awesome uh, early literature that you can read. But we have like one copy of it that was like early original and it looks generally the same, but that's about all it is. But we have nothing even close to when it was written. And people were like, no, that book, that must be exactly how it was. Yeah. Whereas oh, with yeah. Bible, they're like, oh, we have this one that's pretty close to when it was written. Nah, somebody changed it. Right. Yeah. Well, let's see. And that, that's what I want the listener to understand. Uh, in the for for this particular episode is truth is on our side and not just truth but data a lot of christians get scared because you know uh, a non-believer may go up to him and say oh we we've already proven the bible's wrong because of science or whatever or anything like that you know and um and 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 they like to bring up these these false accusations essentially but in reality the Bible has been under such scrutiny, and not just by non-believers, but believers as well. I mean, we have mm-hmm. tried to prove it wrong, and I mean, it just lines up and lines up, and it's it's crazy how accurate it is. Um, so well, I want Christians a- to be I want Christians to be encouraged that the Bible that we have is solid as a rock, and and God has preserved His word. I think there's an understandable question that comes from from people, and it's one of the things I start with a lot of times when it comes to discipleship, both of believers and when I'm talking to non-believers, uh, especially people I've talked to multiple times. The question I always ask is, what would it take you to believe the Bible? What what thing would you have to see or know? Yeah, uh, and it's an important question because I think believers have to have that question answered as well. And so, like for me, you could ask me the question, what would it take for me to no longer believe the Bible? What would yeah. it take? For me to say, nope, it's all a myth. And honestly, <laughs> the answer is, if you could prove a single thing in the Bible to be absolutely false, not, right. okay, it was here, but it was there, 
I think this, or we have no proof of it, but actually prove something wrong, which there are plenty of things you could prove wrong uh, in scripture, facts and details that it has stated. You, mean, you, you don't mean that there wrong. are things that are wrong. You mean that there are many opportunities that they could, they could pick out, right? Yeah, like there okay. was this okay. city, this king, yeah. that for you know, you could like verifiable facts that you yeah. could possibly prove wrong. And if any of those things are wrong, then you can throw out all of scripture because if any part of it, even scripture itself, if any part of it's wrong, then you can't trust the rest of it because right. who knows? Uh, so that would be my answer to it. And the, the glory of that is, is that the Bible has, through all of this scrutiny, never been proven wrong. Yep. There are things that have yet to be verified, is how I would say it. So things that we don't know whether or not it is true, but we assume it is because everything else we've seen is true. Uh, but there's nothing that has been proven false. Yeah. Uh, and that's a key point to the inerrancy of Scripture and, and how we believe it. Definitely. Well, cool, guys. Um, I think uh, we're, we're probably over time at this point. Uh, the, the network's waving at us and screaming at us. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna guess um, 58 minutes. All right, hey, 54 minutes. All right, we'll try to hour. we'll try to cut it down. We'll see. Um, no, we'll see. Yeah, but hey, Jed, thank you so much for being a part of this, for being our first guest. Um, no, I was the first guest. Don't take that away. He's from the me. okay. I'm sorry, the first virtual guest. Okay. <laughs> you, you okay. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Our, our permanent guest is is a little. You know, he's. He's he's Just worried like, about. Can like you be a permanent <laughs> guest? Though? Yeah, yeah, he's a permanent guest. He's our well. They brought guest. me on for one episode. The third <laughs> he just episode, never left. And then as we we're done recording, he was like, "Why don't you come back?" <laughs> and I've been back ever since. Uh, well, yeah, Jed. Hey, th- thanks, man. We we really appreciate you guys and uh, everybody listening. Thank you so much. Um, uh, we we appreciate your contributions. We appreciate your your views and your time. And uh, we don't just sit there and. And listen, actually do something, change. You doers of the podcast and not merely hearers <laughs> who delude themselves. Yeah, the doers of the word versus hearers that's, of the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's DDS. I just wanted to make that's, sure. That's DDS faith chapter one, verse 22. <laughs> no, just, All right, guys. Thank you, and y'all have a good night. No, no, let Jeremy do it. Start I think it. it'd be funny. Start it. I thought you were telling us to wrap it up and finish. No, get in here and say the pet here, population. Here, here you go. Just lean your Here's fi- the mic. Yeah. Here you go. Help control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. (laughs) And good night. (laughs) Jeremy has left the building. Thanks for listening. For more information on DDS Faith Ministries, please visit our website at ddsfaith.org and follow us on social media. Thanks.